It is really good to refresh our memories, isn't it? Because it's actually astonishing how much we forget, especially after having such a wonderful summer. And I thought it would be really good to kind of underscore those things as we just chew them, chew them together and, and it would remind each other of, of some of the things that um, maybe you had forgotten. And so I'd like to start that just for the first few minutes of this evening, just to kind of go over what we learned. Um, and, and hopefully, um, hopefully you'll remember even more than what we just say. But we first, we started our first Blueprints night talking about Eve. And we talked about the fact that we cannot take our cues in terms of our design as women from f- the fallen Eve, which, which is what we tend to do. We have to go back to what was God's original intention for this woman and what was spoken about her before the fall. Because that's where we get who we're supposed to be. And what we learned about Eve was that she was an image bearer. She was a bearer of light. She was a light bearer. She was, she was a God-inspired God creation. And she bore his image. It was stamped all over her. And um, she reflected him in everything that she did. And in order to be image bearers, we have got to know the one whose image we bear. How can we bear the image of someone who's a stranger and a foreigner to us? So it behooves us as Azers to know him. That means to know him in the secret place, to know him in our intimacy with him, in our communion with him, to fellowship with him on a daily basis, to get to know him so we can reflect everything about him that he wants us to reflect. And we also learned that that we were, and this is where we got this wonderful word that is highlighted throughout the book, the word Azer, which means helper. And that word, again, is not just, you know, a lame sort of submissive word that means my assistant. It means a strong helper. It's like a rescuer. It's like a military word. It's like someone who comes alongside, who comes under, who comes around. And we learned that that word azer is unique because it's a word that's given to us, but it's the word that's actually, that is one of the names of God. It refers to God so many times in the Old Testament. He rides through the heavens to our help because he's our helper. And we learn that the Holy Spirit is called our helper. So this is a thing that is uniquely wired into us as women. It's something that we have that's a God thing. And I know men can be helpers, but they're not called Azers. We are. That's something that we should take very seriously. And what does that mean? It means that we... We're created to align ourselves with God as his image bearers to to help partner with God to bring his purposes to pass. That's what Azares do. And so that's what we were learning throughout throughout listening and, and reading this book and talking through these women's lives. We learned about Sarah, who was the wife of a help, kind of a self-preserving guy, somebody whom God loved, Abraham. And she had a hard life, and uh, she was a sojourner. She traveled. She had no permanent address until she was in her grave. And she was barren. She never had any children until the Lord brought forth his promise. But up until that time, she had a very tormented life and a risky one. She was given over to Abimelech and to Pharaoh because her husband was afraid that he would be killed. Remember that? And so she was at risk. And she was put into the king's harem. So she had some things happen to her that were very, very difficult. And um, she did some terrible things. 
She treated her little servant, Hagar, terribly. She was abusive. She was actually an angry, violent woman at times. Imperfect. An imperfect, flawed, sad person on many levels. But it was when God encountered her personally and she spoke. You know, she thought something in the tent. Remember that moment? And God heard and let her know that he heard. And it was that moment of encounter that changed everything for her. And Hebrews tells us that she received the faith to conceive. This woman that was in her 90s received the faith to conceive. And that's when Isaac was born. By faith, Sarah received the power to conceive. And she became a willing Azer to advance the cause of God and not her own. Then we learned about Hagar, the Egyptian slave that was drafted into service for Abraham and Sarah. That was actually, I think the story about Hagar is one of my favorite. She was marginalized. She was given a Hebrew name. She was treated terribly. She was a slave amongst a foreign group of people. And then she was used. Uh, it was Sarah's big idea to try and make this promise of God come to pass. And so she she arranged for her husband to sleep with Hagar so Hagar could bear a son that would technically belong to Sarah. And this is how the promise was going to come to pass. So this girl was violated. And then she was treated terribly because Sarah was so jealous and absolutely despised her, hated her, mistreated her, and was abusive. And so Hagar ran away, fearing for her life. And it was in that place, in the wilderness, when nobody pursued her, Nobody cared enough to send out the posse after her. It was God himself. God himself appeared to her and spoke with her. And that we learned that precious truth that she was the first person, a woman, who actually named God. She gave God a name. And that name she gave him was El Roe. You are the God who sees. And God just expressed such love and care for her, told her what her son's name was, gave her a promise for her son and said, now I want you to go back there. And she had a choice. She had a choice to either align herself with what God, El Roe, said, or to keep running. But she chose to submit herself to this God and to go back into this difficult situation and do what God said. She was an Azer. Then we learned about Tamar, the Canaanite daughter-in-law of Judah, who married um, his first son, Ur, who was so wicked, we learn, that God killed him. Then she was married to the second son, Onan, and this guy who was supposed to give her children to carry on the Judaic line decided to spill his semen on the ground instead of impregnating her so that she could have a child because he refused to give her a child. They treated her terribly. God hated it so much, he killed Onan. And Judah wasn't about to make good on his promise because he was afraid for the life of his third son. So he sent Tamar back to her family, and there she sat in her widow's clothes. And there she would have sat until she died. But this Azer had a fire in her bones, and she was not about to let the line of Judah go dead. So she took some outrageous measures. She posed as a prostitute. Remember we talked about that? Not recommended. She posed as a prostitute, tricked Judah, who was 
a wicked man and immoral. And he impregnated her and she gave birth to twins. This was at risk to her own life because had she been caught as being pregnant, she would have been stoned. In fact, this was what in fact was going to happen. Burn her, stone her when they found out. But then she, because she had tricked him and taken his possessions that showed that the father was Judah of, this, of, the, of these twins that she bore, she, she was saved and Judah was busted. Do you remember that story? She single-handedly saved the line of Judah. Why, why was that a big deal? That was a really big deal. That was a really, really big deal. This woman who posed as a prostitute saved the line of Judah, and it was out of the line of Judah that Jesus was born, the Messiah, also King David. An extraordinary thing that this woman did. And she was called righteous. She was called righteous. And she's written up in the genealogy of Jesus in the book of Matthew. It puts a different perspective on this woman. Azares do radical things to serve the purposes of God. She was instrumental in turning Judah's heart back to the Lord. That man was so backslidden, but from that moment on, he was a changed man. And he served God again. Then we learned about Hannah, that dear woman who was married to Elkanah, who also had an issue with infertility. She was persecuted and taunted by Penina, the second wife that Elkanah married in order to have kids, because that was his fix. Not, let's help this woman and let's pray and seek God. No, let's just have another wife and see if she can have kids. And I'll love Hannah anyway. But Hannah didn't get all bitter and bent out of shape, as we sometimes do, right? when we don't get what we want. How many of us have ever blamed God and got angry with God when something didn't go our way, when we've asked him for it and pleaded with him for it? And then we make God the problem and we're all bitter at God, but she didn't do that. She pressed in harder. And on that trip to Shiloh, she went into that temple and she poured her heart out before the Lord. And she, she promised that if she got pregnant, she would give that child over to the Lord. God granted her request, and she did give that child over to the Lord. And that child was Samuel, the greatest prophet that Israel saw, who was an influencer of kings, who influenced the entire nation, pulled the nation out of unrighteousness and back on track. And we learn through the things that Hannah did and through the things that Hannah said and her visits to Samuel every year faithfully, that he learned at her feet, certainly not at Eli's feet, the high priest, and certainly not Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas, who were not following the Lord. But he learned all about God from his mom. And King David quotes Hannah in the Psalms. And so you realize that this woman understood God. Why? Because she knew God, because she fellowshiped with God because she loved God, because she put God first. She never turned away from God in all her sorrow and in all her persecutions, but she pushed in harder, and she became an influencer of kings herself through her motherhood of Samuel. I mean, that is profound. And if we ever think, those of us who are mothers in the room, that our investments into our children are just paltry, mediocre things, 
Don't ever believe that because you don't know what's coming down the line generationally. You do not know what impact your children will one day have on somebody else. This is what Azares do. They line up with God. They don't turn away from God when things don't go their way. And that's what Hannah did. Then we learned about Esther. That was a great, that was our last time together. And she was a little bit of a surprise, remember, because some of us all were like into our Sunday school mode of, oh, Esther, for such a time as this, Esther. And she's just so awesome, right? Actually, not so much. And we learned that she was really part of the, the group of Jews that were exiled from, from Israel, and they had all been told to go back, but some of them chose to stay in Babylon. Some of them chose to stay in Persia. Esther was one of those Jews. Esther and her uncle Mordecai, they were kind of covert. They weren't sort of heralding the fact that they were Jews. And then the beauty queen pageant came up where the king needed a new wife, and she got conscripted, and conscripted into that, and she went with the program, didn't she? She kept it silent under her uncle's orders that she was, in fact, Jewish. She never breathed a word. She didn't behave like the other exiled Jews, like Daniel, in exile when they were in Babylon. She, didn't, she, didn't, she wasn't a, for such a time as this Jew at that point. She wasn't saying, oh, I'm not going to do this. No, she rolled with it. She had the eunuch on her side telling her how to prepare for this. She was on board. She went in that night that her number came up to go sleep with the king, and she did it, even though this was taboo for an Israeli woman. She did it. She won. She married the king. And for several years, he didn't know she was Jewish until that moment where the nation was threatened. And that's when Mordecai came to her and challenged her that she needed to she needed to do something about this. It was that moment that Esther woke up. Something came over her. Something awoke in her that had been long dormant, that had just gone to sleep and, and, and was lulled into complacency in the camouflaged life that she carried on in Persia as this beauty queen with beautiful oils on her heels and fragrances. And all of that, what unfolded there was the story of, of, of her strategic thinking and her shrewd uh, ways of, of planning how she was going to do this and influence the king, which she, of course, did. And you begin to see the gifting that God had put in her. Why? Because she had woken up to who she truly was, someone who was, in fact, here for such a time as this. And she ended up saving her nation. She ended up saving the nation because of what she did. And we talked about where do we camouflage ourselves into the culture? Where, where are we at in our lives? Are we, are we so covert that people don't even know that we're Christians? And what has God placed in us that is ex of extreme value to him and things that he wants to use in every situation that you find yourself in, what does he want you to do and how does he want you to align yourself with him to that end? These were women who were Azares. They advanced the cause of God and they walked in a way that expressed his Azare nature. 
They weren't perfect. Isn't that exciting? Is there anyone perfect in this room? Oh, I think there's one. (laughs) I have one friend who's perfect. But it's so important that we recognize God uses flawed women. God wants to use every single one of us in this room with all our quirks and our foibles and even our sin. Our sort of fleshly human solutions to things. He just wants us to line up with him and say, Lord, I'm with you. Talk to me. Fellowship with me. Women who walk with God. Women who walk with God. So tonight we're actually going to move to the New Testament. And we're going to talk about a young Azair woman who aligned with the purposes of God at the cost of potentially losing everything that she held dear. A woman who, as Carol and James put it, made a choice to embrace God's purpose and in so doing, unleashed an avalanche of difficulties in her life, drawing her into a disorienting mix of breathtaking privilege and unspeakable pain. Mary of Nazareth is our topic today. Seven years ago or so, I'm not exactly sure how long, I, um, my niece got married to a really nice young man who was, is Italian and a Catholic. And um, though he was not devout, his Italian family is extremely devout Roman Catholic. And they needed to be married in the Roman Catholic Church. So I, it was one of the, f- I think, two times that I had ever been in a Roman Catholic Church. And what I saw when I went into that Catholic church in Vancouver was actually a really big shock to me. I was not prepared for it. And it wasn't the gold-painted sort of ornate icons or the designs or the stained glass windows or the incense that shocked me. Um, There was what can only be described as a glass terrarium. It's maybe not quite as long as a stage, but it was a glass case And Jesus was laying in there, a statue of Jesus, gaunt, emaciated, and um, bleeding, and crown of thorns on his head, and clearly not resurrected. And that was at the front of the church. It wasn't even that that shocked me so much. What shocked me was the 15-foot statue of Mary that was the first thing you saw when you walked in and overtook the entire room. Wow, was she beautiful. I mean, this was one radiant statue and massive, absolutely massive. She had a halo. She looked absolutely glorious. And she was clearly the center of the room. And she eclipsed absolutely everything in the room, including Jesus, unresurrected Jesus, lying in the glass case. And I was so shocked. My mouth dropped open. I, I kind of didn't know what to make of it all. But I thought, you know, this is just kind of typical of what the world has made of Mary. Um, she's been made into a god herself. She's been misunderstood. She has been misrepresented. We have, many have viewed her as a replacement or a substitute for God. And that's disrespectful and dishonoring to the king of kings, but it's also very disrespectful and dishonoring to Mary. And there's so much to learn from her because she was basically an Azair. From BibleLight.net, I pulled this quote. 
The most popular form of idolatry that ever captivated the human heart is the worship of Mary. To the priest of contemplative mind, Mary has every beauty, every charm, every divine grace. Pure enough to be the chosen mother of Jesus, she has unparalleled honors. She is chaste as the unspotted snow. Her praises are sung. Her glories are proclaimed with glowing homage. The worship of Mary actually began in Arabia. It was a custom that women used to devote bread to the gods, and they ended up devoting it to Mary, and that's how the thing began. And it was in the Dark Ages that it really took hold, and it reached a height, this worship of Mary. The Jesuits pronounced, quote, that as it was a woman who brought in sin, so a woman was to bring in holiness. That as a woman brought in death, so a woman was to bring in life. This is a direct quote. That as Eve brought in death, so Mary was to bring in salvation. That as we regard Eve as the first sinner, so we are to regard Mary as the first savior. The one as the author of sin, the other as the author of its remedy. Direct quote. The feeling was universal among Romanists that the Virgin Mary was more merciful, more gentle, more ready to hear than Christ. St. Bernard and more recently Pope, Popes Leo XIII and Benedict XV said, As we have no access to the Father except through the Son, no one can come to the Son except by the Mother. Just reading you the quotes. As the Son is all-powerful by nature, the Mother is all-powerful in so far that the merciful disposition of God, she is our mediator of the graces with Christ. Frequently our petitions are heeded sooner when we address ourselves to Mary, the Queen of mercy and compassion, I'm starting to talk like them, than when we go directly to Jesus, who is as King, the King of justice, and he is our judge. Mary is more accessible than Christ. She has come to be seen as the queen of the heavens, the glorious virgin mother of God, and this school of thought prevails to this day. In May of 1997, the Pope gave an address dedicated to the Virgin Mary, and he exhorted all to, quote, make room for Mary in their daily lives, acknowledging her providential role in the path of salvation. This is a picture that many in the world have formed of her, but it's not the picture that the Bible forms of her at all. There's absolutely nothing written there that makes her sacred. Not one instance in which she was venerated or worshipped. We don't even know if she was extraordinarily righteous or holy. Honestly, we don't. It doesn't say that anywhere in my Bible. Have you ever seen that? Do you know of a verse? The Bible is silent about who she was. What we do know is that she was not the magnificent queen of heaven. She was simply a God-loving daughter of mankind, a follower of God, a young girl on a journey discovering how he wanted her to be an Azar. She was a child about to be herself showered in grace and chosen by God for a very, very, very important assignment. Ladies, we all have assignments. I'm going to say that one more time. Every single one of you in this room has not just one assignment, but many assignments from God. He's already prepared you for works before there was even one of them, Ephesians 2.10. Mary was young. She's about 13, 14 years old, but she had a big assignment. 
Ours might not be like hers. That's not the point. The point is always our yes to God to say yes to his assignments in our lives. What's the assignment God has for us? She was a sinner like every one of us. I have to break it to you. In fact, you can read this perspective from herself when she says this in Luke 1, 47, in the Magnificent, Magnificat, she cries out, My spirit rejoices in God, my... Because she needed one. Mary needed a savior. She wasn't the savior. She needed one. And rather than worship her, we can find so much to learn from this precious, dear Azer, which is what she was, not the goddess and queen of heaven. In our first introduction to her, we learn a lot. We, we read about the encounter she has, the cost she paid, the response she made. First of all, in the encounter, God sends a very high-ranking angel, probably the highest-ranking angel, Gabriel, to her. For a young girl of approximately 13 years old, 14, her response to this angel is extraordinary. She's troubled and she's disturbed. But here's what she doesn't do. She did not run away. Well, that tells me something about her right away. This is a young girl who had a capacity to engage in the supernatural. You better believe this angel was a pretty amazing manifestation. She didn't run from it. In fact, immediately she believed the words of this messenger. And unlike Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, she didn't ask for a sign. She simply asked for clarification. All she said was, how is this going to happen? Because I'm a virgin. We understand from this that Mary was open to God and the ways of God, that she had an expectancy and an acceptance of his activity in her life. And she didn't shy away from it. Isn't that wonderful? How do we approach God? Do we have an expectation that God will manifest his presence to us in a very real and tangible way and maybe even sometimes send an angel? It has happened. It's still happening. Mary shows us that this is possible. And what a right response to that is. So she had an ability to engage in the supernatural and to understand that God was supernatural. In fact, when she wants clarification, the angel says, nothing is impossible with God. Who was that said to once before? Do you remember? Yes. Right answer. Sarah, one of the Azers we've already talked about. The very self-same thing that they said to... Sarah was said to Mary here, nothing is impossible with God. These women are tied through the very same words. And then when she says, I am the servant of the Lord, let it be to me according to your word. That word servant is the same word that Hannah used when she talked to the Lord. I am the Lord's servant. There's such a dovetailing with these precious women, right? We see Mary's faith towards God and her decision to live as his servant. Secondly, the cost, her response was amazing. 
Her marriage to Joseph had likely been negotiated by her father years earlier, as was the common practice, and betrothal, as you read in your book, was a binding contract. It could only be broken by divorce or death. It's not like it is now. People, oh my word, people ditch their fiancés left, right, and center. I changed my mind, and it's over. There's wreckage and carnage all over. Not so here. In this culture, betrothal was binding. So accepting God's plan for this pregnancy was an exhilarating thought to bear the promised seed of the Messiah, but what this meant in her reality would be that Joseph would be shamed and dishonored publicly and would likely not believe her and seek a divorce. She would lose her reputation. No one would ever in a million years believe such a crazy story. She would have shattered dreams of the life that she had actually envisioned for herself. How many of you had, have, or do have envisioned a life for yourself? And it didn't kind of, some hands going up, end up the way you thought it might. Right? So she had some shattered dreams. A good life with nice furniture from the carpenter and the love and respect of a community that she'd grown up in. She would have faced unjust accusations leveled at her with no viable form of defense to offer in return. And last but not least, she was risking being stoned to death because that's what they did with immoral girls. She would have wounded those she loved who trusted her and loved her. Joseph, her parents, her brothers, her sisters. Can you imagine? They're wounding when they found out that she was pregnant. And this wouldn't be a temporary event that would fuel the gossip mill for just two weeks and be gone. This would be a lifetime brand that she would wear in the eyes of all who knew her. She was going to know difficulty and risk, an untimely birth, separation from her family, and ultimately having to flee from the murderous King Herod. It was going to be uncomfortable, painful, terrifying, humiliating, and she was 13 years old. But this was no ordinary Azar. Her response was, I'm the servant of the Lord. I am the Lord's handmaiden. Let it be to me as you've said. She had this thing in her that just said, yes. I surrender to you, Lord, in spite of the cost, without hesitation. She didn't negotiate and she didn't counterpropose. She just received his word with courage, and she accounted the approval of God as more important than the approval of her husband, her family, her community, and she elevated God's will above her own, his plans over hers. In her Magnificat, when she goes to visit Elizabeth, she speaks of the glory of God, and she echoes some of the very words that Hannah spoke in her Magnificat. And there's theology. There's great theology in that. So what do we learn from Mary? She was a good theologian. She knew the word of God. She braved the risks and challenged challenges and was ready to advance God's kingdom. One of the things I so appreciate about this chapter on Mary is Carolyn James's perspective that, you know, we tend to view Mary in this very sort of sanitized way. We see her as sort of the blessed Madonna at the birth with this ethereal light shining on her in the stable, and she's enraptured by her child, and Joseph is enraptured. And then the second thing we see of her is the sorrowing woman at the cross 
But I love what Carolyn James identifies as Mary in the middle. And we're just going to talk about that for a few minutes. Because there's so much to be gleaned from Mary in the middle. Actually more than, than what we see at the birth and at the, the, the cross. The first snapshot um, we get from her is when Simeon prophesies to her when she goes to the temple to, to dedicate him and to have him circumcised at eight days old. He says, this a sword is going to pierce your soul. And we tend to view that as, as ultimately when Jesus was hanging on the cross, that sword was going to pierce her soul. She was going to be in such anguish. But I think that sword pierced her soul all the way through. Because she went through a whole lot as she was raising Jesus. Her soul was pierced many times in Jesus' lifetime, and we get a foreshadowing of it here. What was to come in this woman's life? It was going to involve pain. What does a sword do? It cuts, it slices, it separates. There was going to be in her life a process of slicing, of separation that would cause anguish of soul. The next snapshot we get of Mary is when Jesus is 12 years old, and they've gone into Jerusalem, and then they're going back home. And they discover to their horror that Jesus is lost. And they panic because they've actually been traveling for days. And they realize, you know, he's not with Joseph. He's not with Mary because these men and the women used to travel in separate sort of sections. And Jesus, the son of God, they've lost the son of God. He's been missing for three days. I mean, is there a mother in the room who's ever lost her child momentarily? Do we know the word panic? I used to go shopping with Rebecca when she was really little, and um, she used to love, you know, the, the clothing things, those round things. She'd slip through the clothing and hide in the middle. I mean, the angst. We actually did lose her once at Polo Park. A stranger found her, and Ron was running like a wild man through Polo Park trying to find his daughter. I mean, it is just panic. We found her. <laughs> they lost the Son of God. <laughs> for three whole days. <laughs> okay, these are real people with real emotions. This real mother loved her real son and had lost him for three days. That's anxiety. And so here's the thing. When they finally find him, they have to go all the way back and they find him teaching and learning and and doing all these things in the temple. And Mary's, Mary comes up to him. She rebukes him. But she says this word. She uses the first word of her sentence is son. Right? Ownership. I'm your mom. This is your mom speaking. Son. She says, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. We've been searching for you in great distress. That is the Greek word. And it means intense pain or torment. It's a very strong word. It's not a small word. And if that wasn't soul-piercing enough for her to have lost her son for three days, I think his answer to her might have driven that sword in a little deeper. He says, why were you looking for me? I have to be about my father's business. Now, she had called him son, but he was establishing something right here at 12 years old. There was a very clear line of demarcation. 
yes, I'm your son, but my sonship with God trumps your motherhood with me. And I have to be about my father's business. What's that like for a mom of a 12-year-old to hear? I have to be about his business. Your claim over me takes a back seat to God's claim over me as his son. This was a whole new reality that Mary had to face. How would you feel? She was a real person with real emotions, with a mother heart of love for her son, who had just been through terror for three days. He doesn't even soften the blow of his words. He just speaks directly and clearly, and that's hard words. My allegiance isn't first to you. My allegiance is to him. My obedience is not first to you. My obedience is to him. I actually belong to another, not to you. Jesus had made a great and important shift here and let his mother understand the full brunt of the implications. His family business was not carpentry. It was the advancement of God's purposes on the earth, and she couldn't get in the way. After the panic, this was not consoling for her. I can relate to this. For many of you, um, you'll know that it was um, not long ago that Will and Elise got an email from a church in England asking them to consider leading a church plant out there. You know how we always have somebody stand up and give a story? I'm the story today. Because this is relevant to me. It seems like every time I teach at Blueprints, it's relevant to me. And God, God does something in me. It's a li- it becomes a living word. And you know, that's really not something I had envisioned or planned. It's still in process in terms of how God's going to speak in that and what God's ultimately going to do. But I had to come to the place where this child that I really love and worked really hard to have, because we had a number of miscarriages after Rebecca, and she is precious to me, as they all are. But I didn't foresee this, and I don't want this, just saying. This would not be my choice. Why? Because I'm a mother and mothers like to have their kids around, right? We like it to go our way. We have an idea of what we want to do with our families and what God should do with our families. But as I've been processing this, I've just had to come to this place of surrender. And I can preach about being an Azer, but but I actually have to put my money where my mouth is and say, Lord, if this is your will, then I need to align myself with it, and I actually need to support it 100%. What kind of a mother am I when I dedicate my children to the Lord, and then I say, no, Lord, you can't do that. I'm putting a condition on it, right? What happens when the kingdom of God invades and cuts Your will crosses it, slices it, takes a sword and separates it. And says, actually, there's a line of demarcation here. 
I know that Elise is your daughter, but she's actually my daughter first. And if I want to do this with her, what is that to you? I'm saying this without crying right now because I have cried. Honestly, I have. But that's what swords do. They pierce. They touch some of the things that are most precious to you. And what does an Azer do? An Azer steps up and says, Hey, I'm good with this. Why? Everyone's tearing up because she gets it. There's so many people in this room who get it. And we give over our daughters. We give over our sons. We give over family members, spouses. It doesn't look like we wanted to, but the kingdom of God trumps what we want. I'm sorry to use that word, trump. It's just... It's going to change that word, but it doesn't, it doesn't lessen the fact that this is a truth that we need to bear. There is a line of demarcation, and the kingdom of God must advance. And as Azares, he calls us to line up with them so that the kingdom of God can go forward. And he gets the glory and he gets to increase his fruitfulness. And he gets to do things that we can't see with our eyes or understand with our comprehension because we can't wrap our heads around it. We can only say, yes, Lord, and then ultimately end up glad in the fruit. It's that piercing. And this is what happened to Mary. The will of God can cross family lines. There's a loyalty that's a higher call than the call to our family or our jobs or where we live or what we feel we're called to. And we learn this from her. And if we make her the queen of heaven and the goddess of who knows what, we miss the point. We miss the things that really matter about this woman. And then the wedding of Cana, this interaction has always been a puzzle to me. As you analyze what Jesus says to his mother, she says, they're short on wine and you need to fix this. And instead of referring to her as mother, he says, woman. He's not being disrespectful. That was not a disrespectful term. But the fact is he used the word woman, which is sort of generic, instead of mother. Interesting. And he actually says this. It sounds like a very hurtful phrase. He says, What do I have to do with you? Another translation says, what do you and I have in common? Ouch. Again, there's no soft peddling the statement. Again, there's this line of demarcation, the defining of the boundary of his relationship with her as he entered his ministry for the first time, that first public miracle. He wasn't following his mother's directives. He was following his father's. Again, she doesn't go away and sulk. She picks herself up and she says to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. (laughs) I love that. She didn't go away and sulk because Jesus had established a line with her. She just absorbed it and told them to do whatever he said. Then there was the time in Luke 8 when 
Remember when Mary and his and and her other sons, Jesus' brothers, were concerned for his health because he wasn't eating properly or probably getting enough sleep, and they said he's lost his senses. And they went over to to talk to him, and he, and and there was such a crowd in the house, and they said, "Hey, your mother and your brothers are here." And do you remember what he said? I've got it written here. My mother and brothers are those who hear God's word and put it into practice. Ouch! If I was his mother standing outside, I would have expected to be ushered in, given a place at his right, because I'm the mother. And, you know, let him take him home. But he was very clear in his message. Family and blood ties are not what make you related to me. Obedience is what makes you related to me. Jesus was setting the stage for the gospel message, which had to do with him coming to earth and saving people and gathering for himself a spiritual family. Carol and James said it's not biological but spiritual. It's not built on bloodlines, biology, or genetics, but on shared commitment to God and his word. The family ties that bind God's family together come from hearing and putting into practice the words of Jesus. The fact of Mary's giving birth to him was less important than if she heard and obeyed his word. Here's the fact. Susan has the fact there. Her greatest calling was not as his mother. Her greatest calling was as his follower. As her son, he wasn't to become like her, but she was to become like him. She needed to understand the good news and come into the kingdom of God the way everyone else did. And this she did. And wow, did she ever. She became an Azer and continued to support, love Jesus to make the changes and adjustments she needed to make in order to become one of his disciples. This took tremendous humility and devotion, a continual softening of her heart and not allowing her soul to become embittered through repeated piercings. Just as an aside, I want to make one comment about Joseph, too. I don't know if you noticed it in the book. There's a little section about Joseph. Did you like that? That's a great... Did you all read the chapter? She talks about Joseph as an extraordinary prototype of a man who who was a godly man, a righteous man, upright and um, wonderful, but who, who really his sole purpose it seemed, was to support his wife, to look after her. The angel made sure that, that he knew that he needed to go forward. This was of God and that he needed to go forward and, and, and help her through this, help her through the pregnancy, marry her, not bring shame to her, not allow her to be stoned, and then to, to take her away and, and you know, be there when the baby was born and then to rescue her when, when King Herod was out after, after killing all these kids. Joseph was a man of God who was in a perfectly wonderful support role of this woman who was carrying out her assignment. And it seems that Joseph's assignment was to help Mary carry out her assignment. Isn't that an interesting perspective? I went out for dinner with Ron the other night. I was telling him this. And he was like, that's beautiful. And I went, yeah, it is. It is beautiful. 
I have to say, um, Helen, your Eddie, your husband, is, is, is one of the finest men I know, um, but exemplifies this so powerfully and so completely. Um, as I have watched Ed serve some of the things, some of the assignments that God has given you to fulfill, Ed has just fueled those and fueled those and su- fueled those and supported and supported and pushed and pushed and helped and lifted. That's a very, he's like a Joseph. There's nothing wrong with that. That is a God thing. And some of you might feel guilty sometimes that you feel like you have an assignment and maybe things are all backwards and, you know, shouldn't it be your husband that has the assignment? I'll tell you what, look at Mary and Joseph. Just look at them. Just take a really good look at them. And remember that you have assignments and sometimes um, a mate is there to help support the assignment on your life. It's possible. And it's a precious thing to see. Okay. Um, There was a a time, I'm going to wrap up real quick here. An unnamed woman who's deeply moved by Jesus' teaching bursts out, Blessed is the mother who gave you birth and nursed you. And that would have made any mother proud. And maybe Mary was was excited because now she's going to get some accolades. And Jesus' response deflated it. And he said, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and obey it. Again, another piercing, another piercing, another, another establishing of what really mattered. He was constantly redefining what really mattered. Not the calling to be a mother, but the calling to be a disciple. And then all her sleepless nights and the mounting anxiety and anger as she saw her son go to trial and, and then ultimately the cross. We need to look at Mary in the middle. Mary in the middle was not a goddess. She was an Azair called by God for great things and endured some great pains in her surrendering to that plan. She bore his image truly, and she Azaired faithfully. And that's what we're called to be. We are image bearers and followers of Jesus. We fulfill our highest calling and find our deepest meaning in life when we hear, when we obey, And when we walk with him as his disciples, that's our highest call. In order to hear, you need to listen. In order to listen, you need to draw near. We cannot expect to hear him if we are so distant from him. And we're all at different stages in our lives, aren't we? I mean, you know, some people have just started new jobs and some of you have low boatloads of kids, young children. And oh my goodness, I remember those days. We were just fighting for some time alone. So you went to the bathroom and even then you couldn't find it. Because they know you're in there. And then, you know, I'm 58 and I just started a business and the tail's wagging the dog and I don't know what happened to my life. I used to have a life. I don't know what stage of life you're in. But as Azares who are wanting to fulfill his assignments for us, we must draw near.
And if we, if we don't have a desire for that, then let's ask him for that. Lord, give me desperation. Give me hunger for you, that I would find you, that I would access you, that I would, that I would approach you and be in you and with you always. That's not just, you know, five minutes in the morning. That's can be five minutes in the morning. It could be all day, with him all day, with him all day. Because you have dual citizenship. You're not just sitting here on a chair. You're with him in heavenly places. How many of us forget that? We act like we just live on the earth. When there's a whole realm that we can access at any time, any place, because we're his image bearers, and we have that capacity to live with him always. Oh, may the Lord open our hearts to desire that and to experience that in our daily, daily lives. That's when you're going to hear him talk. You're going to hear him talk to you at the least provocation. You don't even have to ask him things. He'll just be telling you things. That's what matters. Jesus establishes the line. What really matters to him is those that hear and obey his word. That's what identifies us as Azares. Women who can engage with him. Women who treasure his words in our heart. And who are willing to be pierced when the sword goes in because it separates your will from his will. And sometimes that, that's painful. And are we willing are we willing to go down that road? His kingdom and his purposes are what matter. Can God mess with your dream? He sure messed with Mary's. Wow, did he mess with her dream. And like Carolyn James said, it, it unleashed exceedingly great joy, but exceedingly great pain too. She wouldn't have traded it for anything I know. Is your life not the perfect picket fence image that you dreamed of? What is he touching in you? Where does the kingdom of God cross your will? Or does it? Has it? Will it? I can pretty much guarantee that if it hasn't, at some point it will. And what will we do? What will we do when that happens? Will we come out and will we stand and will we say, Ah, yes, Lord. I say yes to you. Behold, the handmaiden of the Lord. Let it be to me as you have said. And to walk in a way that releases and surrenders and allows him to have his way because he sees a greater purpose. He saw a greater purpose for Sarah. He saw a greater purpose for Hagar and for her offspring. He saw a far greater purpose for Hannah. Hannah endured great pain, but oh, did she affect a nation. And oh, did she affect generations. He saw that for Esther because he wanted to save the exiles who were outside of his will. 
because he's so full of mercy. He has extraordinary plans. And he will use flawed women who simply say, yes, I choose you, Lord, and I choose your will. I don't know how it's going to look. But one thing I do know, you. I know you. That's everything. That's all. That's all we need. And that will define who we are, and that's going to be what pours out of us when we get bumped. It's interesting when you get bumped and your wheel gets crossed, what comes out? It's not very nice. I've discovered some things about myself in the last few months I don't like that run contrary to the things I preach. And I've had to come into line, oh, very much, come into line with God's ways. It's the real deal. 